copies on somebody else's Moshe intentionally inconvenienced himself and went out to the desert instead of a place more local to ensure that there would be no concern whatsoever about any accidental stealing that might come in his employment as a shepherd. According to Rashi's view, Hashem approaches Moshe at the burning bush because of his excellence in Ben Adam And Hashem chose Moshe because this kind of job would require a high level of moral and ethical fortitude to approach Pyro and demand for the Jewish people to leave Egypt. The Sforno, however, picks up on a very different point. He disagrees with Rashi, and he explains that Moshe was in the desert at the point right at the Saktasha, Hulavado, Lihit Boded, Ulihit Palel. Moshe was in the desert to introspect and to pray to Hashem on his way and journey to Eretz Yisrael, Moshe was hoping that he could go to the Kivrei Avot, to the Kever of Adam, Chava, Abraham, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, Yaakov, Le'an, Roshosh, in order to connect with Hashem. Moshe intentionally isolated himself from the noise of society to develop his relationship with God, and it's no accident that his Hakdasha happens at Har Sinai itself, foreshadowing the moment when Moshe will return, not just with a flock of sheep, but the flock of Am Yisrael. And Hashem approaches Moshe at the Sneh because of Moshe's excellence, not in Ben Adam the Chaveru like Rashi, but rather because of Moshe's excellence in Ben Adam the Makom. So Hashem approaches Moshe here and now because this kind of job to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt will require an intimate and consistent encounter with God. When we consider, well, who might be right, Rashi or Sephorno, whether it's Moshe's Ben Adam Lechaveiro, like Rashi, or Ben Adam Lamakom, like Sephorno, the answer ultimately is going to be Taloi on who were Moshe's influences in his life, in his nurturing, the miraculous events that led to the, his being able to be alive, Baparo, Yocheved, Miriam, and also those who taught him ethical points about how to live the best life possible and the heroism of those who kept him alive. The reason why I want to mention this as a point of departure is that in our panel about iGeners and post-millennials, we too should be asking very similar questions. When we think about what makes the most wholesome person, what makes a person ethically sound, what makes someone best positioned to contribute to the world and to be a hero we looked at people like Moshe Rabbeinu, who also had life circumstances and very specific nurturing to make him into the hero who he is. It is no surprise that the specific experience of an iGener or a post-millennial is one that is complex and difficult and requires thoughtful and intentional discussion about how to best meet our, their needs. And with that, I'm so honored to be moderating this panel with three exemplary educators who can give us insight and practical suggestions about how best to meet their needs. I'll give a short bios for, for each one of the speakers, um, and then we'll just dive quickly into the discussion. Um, this is um, Yoetzet Halacha Shefi Friedman. She serves as a Yoetzet for multiple Manhattan synagogues and provides personal consultation and leads communal education in the area of women's health and halacha. She's taught in various formal and informal Jewish educational settings for a decade and currently teaches Tanakh and Halacha and Mayanot 
and coordinates aspects of student activities. She serves along with her husband, Rabbi Noam Friedman, uh, who I believe is also in the audience, Yeshiva um, Haratzion <laughs> Alama of 2007, um, and the t- together they serve as the OUJLAC couple in Columbia Barnard Hillel. Um, next to Shifi is Rabbi Joe Wolfson. I'm going to pull up his bio from the OUJLAC website. Whoops. One second. Okay. Where uh, Rabbi Joe um, grew up in London, but has spent most of the last decade studying, working, and loving, uh, loving life in Israel. He has studied at Yeshivat Haritzion and Bit Morashah, through which he received a smicha from the Israeli chief rabbinate. He thought he was going into politics and did degrees at Cambridge, where he was the president of the Jewish Society and UCL. He decided to go into Jewish education and has taught texts in four continents, primarily as a Jewish faculty member, as a faculty member in the London School of Jewish Studies, beyond music, good books, and cycling at HBO. Rabbi Joe is, a pas- is passionate about the way in which texts link up to larger issues in Jewish identity. He has worked in areas as diverse as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, religious-secular relations in Israel, and European Jewish communities. He, now he is excited to return to school and be part of the heart in, of Jewish learning and life at NYU. And finally, to the left of Rabbi Joe, excuse me, to the right of Rabbi Joe, my bad. Um, I guess you're left, <laughs> is, um, is Rabbi Dr. Gil Pearl. Um, Rabbi Dr. Gilas Pearl is the head of school at Kohel Yeshiva, a modern Orthodox K-12 Yeshiva day school in Marion Station, Pennsylvania. As chief academic officer of the Kohelet Foundation, Rabbi Pearl led the team that designed and launched Kohelet Yeshiva Lab School, a highly innovative elementary school intended to reimagine what Jewish day school can and ought to be. After spending two years in Yeshivat Haritzion, Rabbi Pearl earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and both a master's degree and PhD from Harvard. Following Harvard, Rabbi Pearl came to Yeshiva University where he received his smicha and served both as an instructor of modern Jewish history in Yeshiva College and as the associate head of school of Yeshiva University High School for Boys. Um, prior to assuming his position at Kohelet, Rabbi Pearl ser- served for seven years as the head of school in the Margolin Hebrew Academy slash Feinstein Yeshiva of the South in Memphis, Tennessee, a school which incidentally my grandfather, Rabbi Alfred Fruchter, founded, which is a pretty cool <laughs> connection. Um, Rabbi Pearl writes and lectures widely on topics related to the to the history of modern Jewry, contemporary Jewish education, and modern orthodoxy. And I, my name is Sarah Robinson, and I teach Mishnah Gemara and Halakha at Manhattan Day School, and I also am very involved in millennial and post-millennial Jewish life, um, where I eat birthright trips, I am a host for One Table in Moshe House um, Without Walls, and I'm so honored to be um, on this, moderating this panel. Um, now for the questions, the fun part. <laughs> um, ultimately, much like the Pesach Seder, where, where it comes to the four questions, it's really all circling around one central question that's broken down into four pieces. Ultimately, the question that we are going to center the rest of our time here today is, what could high schools, yeshivot, midrashot, and colleges do better to encourage igeners in being invested and connected to religious life? I'll repeat that. What could high schools, yeshivot and midrashot, and colleges do better to encourage igeners in being invested and connected in religious life? That is our core question that I want us to be grappling with. And that question can be broken down into smaller chunks. So what we're going to have is we're going to have an opportunity for each of our panelists to share their responses, and then we'll have some time afterwards for them to discuss with each other. Sababa, sound good? Yeah, great. So um, for our first question, what are the challenges that are unique to this generation 
of post-millennial slash iGeners, particularly in their religious life, what kind of challenges make it difficult for an iGener to feel connected? What's our order, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> the order? Take it away. <laughs> no particular order. Okay. So, in, in thinking about iGeners, I think about there are generally four areas that strike me as um, challenges, and and two more or less um, more or less unique challenges to this generation that really set them apart from what came before. So. The four that stick out in my mind are as follows. Number one, I think that there is um, almost a, a radical sense of individualism that kind of pervades iGeners, and we see this in our community. People have noted it well beyond our community. Um, and I think that that individualism has um, a, quite a number of, uh, of repercussions. Um, and by individualism, you know, I don't necessarily mean narcissism, which is a word excuse the, to, you know, the, the millennials in the room that is often used with regard to millennials. Um, it is not used as frequently with regard to iGeners. That is not necessarily that they expect everything to be handed to them, but that their worldview is very much about individuals. It's about me as an individual. It's about you as an individual. And I may very well be quite sensitive to you as an individual. In fact, I might be hypersensitive to you as an individual, but I expect the same back to me as an individual. Um, when it comes to the religious realm, so I, I, I often see this individual, individualism playing itself out um, with regard to a, a deep degree of skepticism around authority. Right? And that authority, we see both with regard to rabbinic authority and with regard to divine authority. Um, with regard to rabbinic authority, I am deeply concerned about a generation that is being raised where... I would guess anywhere from 75 to 95% of the conversations that our young people hear about rabbinic figures, whether they be school-related figures or shul-related figures, are highly critical, if not disparaging. Those are the conversations that we have at our Shabbos tables. Um, if we're mentioning somebody with the word rabbi, right, it's generally to criticize them. Um, and we have an entire generation of young people, I think, who are growing up on that. Um, the, the word reverence, I think, is one that is it's, it's absent from you know, the, the experiential lexicon of, of, of our young people today. It's not an experience they've ever had, um, and, and I wonder what the implications of that are going to be going forward. Um, with regard to divine, um, to divine authority, so Christian Smith is a uh, sociologist who um, a number of years ago, was studying American youth, the religious lives of American youth, and he coined a phrase that I think is pretty apropos for our um, our kids as well. Um, he called it MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. And moralistic therapeutic deism basically is uh, a, a, a series of beliefs that kind of holds that um, there is a God, that what God wants from me is to be good. Right? to be a kind person, to be a nice person, um, that the goal of life is to be happy. Right? And that way it's therapeutic. It's, the goal here is for me to feel good about what I'm doing. And at the end of the day, God isn't terribly involved or terribly care very much about the ins and outs of what I do. As long as I'm good and I'm acting uh, you know, generally the right kind of way, 
God's going to be okay with me. So it's moralistic, it's therapeutic, and it's deism in a way. And uh, I see variations of that amongst our kids as well. That is the notion of tzivoy, the notion of commandedness to do something because it was commanded of me is something that I find pretty rare. Right, or pretty hard to get over to, to our kids today. So that's the issue of individualism. I apologize if I'm taking up too much time on this. But uh, issue number two that I see is I see a, a, a generation of kids that is growing up steeped in a postmodern view of truth. Whether they can articulate it or not is, you know, doesn't matter, but there's a reality that um, when you dig beneath the surface, they are very skeptical as to whether there is a singular truth out there, and if there is a truth out there, um, can we or can we not, you know, what, what are our chances of actually being able to access it? And as a result, it, it leads to sort of a, a live and let live kind of mentality. I'm going to do my thing and you do your thing, but I certainly am not going to judge you and I don't want you to judge me. And that issue of feeling judged, I think, is a major issue when it comes to our kids and their religious development. So they, they don't want to feel judged, they don't want others to judge them. Um, and, and they respond um, quite well when we don't and quite poorly when we do. Number three, I am concerned about what I see as a lack of intrinsic motivation amongst our kids to outdo their parents. Um, and this is a maybe a highly American ethos, but it is one that has motivated, motivated I think, several generations of young people. If we go back several generations, there was the motivation to outdo our parents educationally. It'd be the first to get a college degree, get a graduate degree. Um, there was the motivation to outdo our parents financially. Um, and then there was actually the, the motivation to outdo our parents religiously. So uh, you know, my parents might have been college graduates and be, a, a, you know, be doctors and lawyers, but they didn't spend a year in Israel, or they didn't spend two years in Israel. Right? Or they weren't so mocked on certain things, Nagia, right? Kalisha, um, and, and so I'm going to live my life in a way that really outdoes them in that sense. And, and I'm concerned about a generation that grows up with parents who are, you know, the father's a doctor, the mother's a lawyer, right? they both spent years in Israel, um, and that sense of like, so, and they're already earning in the top 2%, you know, or less of, of you know, of earners in the United States. So what is left for them? Um, and I actually think that the uptick that we're seeing in kids who are making Aliyah or going to the army is actually a response to that. I think it's kind of a new space that they're cult cultivating for themselves. And the last thing I'll throw out there is that I'm concerned, and I'm not 100% sure what the implications are on the religious sphere yet, but um, it's been well documented, both quantitatively and anecdotally, that we're raising a generation with an extremely high incidences of anxiety, depression, um, mood disorders, uh, that numbers are about, depending on which one of those you're looking at, and suicidal thoughts. So if you're, depending on which one you're looking at, you're somewhere between 50 to 75% higher than just a generation ago, with kids of the same age, just a generation ago, and there's no question that that's impacting them. It's going to impact them going forward. Again, I'm just not 100% sure what exactly that impact is going to be. Okay. I think you covered a lot. I'll see yeah. if um, some of my points relate to some of the things that you mentioned. Um, anxiety, which you just threw in there, was something that was definitely on my mind. I think that that the students, so I, I work with college students and high school students, so I guess there's a little, a few millennials in there, but probably more iGeners. What would you say, Rabbi Joe, to the 
how you think of your college students, I guess. I use a Samsung, so I don't identify with iGen. <laughs> okay, good. So, um, so I think I'll speak now mostly to um, the high school population um, because I think of, of them sort of in a, in a more formal sense. But um, they're very open about the issues that you mentioned, anxiety, depression. I think especially anxiety, maybe some of the others are, are more taboo. I've never heard students talk openly about suicidal thoughts. That's in another category and hopefully not as common. But, but certainly anxiety is, is something that is, is so out there and, and influences the um, actual education that goes on in a very real way and, and changes the way that school, I think, looks looks like as opposed to a generation ago. Um, so religiously and academically, I think that that's a really big, a big question. Um, and just in conversations that I've had with students, I think that they, they focus a lot on, on themselves. Perhaps this, this would fit into individualism. individualism. So um, if we're calling them iGen, and I think that there are a lot of different terms for this generation, we could call them Gen Z, or, or there's probably a whole bunch of others. But... Um, um, but they they certainly see things revolving around themselves. I don't know how much of that is being a teenager and how much is being part of this generation. I haven't taught that many uh, generations, um, not being in this field so long myself. Um, but but they certainly see things revolving themselves. And and one thing that that hasn't been mentioned is the fact that they really grew up with technology. So. Um, they probably can't remember a time when they didn't have their iPhone or their Samsung, you know, right um, in their in their pocket um, and able to, you know, glance at it any time. So how is that affecting many of these things? I think that there's another panel speaking about technology that you could catch, but that won't be so much of our focus per se. But I think that definitely contributes to some of these things. And, and the issues that they experience, they don't put these issues away when they go home from school at way too late in the evening, five, five o'clock, you know, with the dual curriculum. But they, they really, they keep thinking about the drama that they're experiencing with their friends or um, issues that come up in school after they go home at night and the conversations really don't end there. And, and um, that's, that's a real challenge, I think. Um, certainly can also affect religion when you talk about um, texting on Shabbos and half Shabbos and, and things like that. Some other themes that I had thought of. So um, this might be something that we also see in the millennial uh, group, but but making meaning of of what they're what they're learning and what they're experiencing is is something that that um, is very salient, I think, in this population, and it can really be motivating, perhaps, as teachers to be to be uh, encouraged to make meaning and push for ourselves and to push our students to, to find connections in what they're learning could be um, really a way to take things to the next level. But I almost find that if they don't connect to something, then they're really willing to just throw it out the window. And it definitely pushes me as a teacher to find reasons for everything and try to explain things incredibly clearly and always be searching for answers. And they have lots and lots of questions. But if they reach an answer that, or you don't have an answer, or, or, or they don't like your answer, then they say, but then why am I going to do it? They really don't see a reason to continue with um, whatever it is that, that I, I think that makes, that's most relevant in the area of halacha. Um, but, but also in other subjects, in, in Tanakh learning, what is, one student said to me, what does Avram and Yitzchak have to do with me? And I was like flabbergasted, like, 
so many things. But, but it needs to really be translated for them. And that's something that also, on the one hand, pushes me to be a better teacher. But on the other hand, um, at a certain point, we need to just, I guess, cultivate this um, sense of commitment and, and acceptance also. So that's, that's sort of a balance that I find with them. Um, some other themes that I thought of were, were comfort, always looking for things to kind of be easy and comfortable and um, even, in, even in a physical sense when it comes to dress code and you mentioned Ruby Pearl that they um, certainly don't want to be judged, they don't want to be told um, to do things in a certain way especially when it comes to something so personal as dress code um, but um, right so, so when it comes to to not wanting to follow dress code, for example, like comfort is is on their minds. You know, why should anybody tell me what to do with my body? I just want to wear my sweatpants, and and they don't. Um, there's nothing <coughs> formal, you know, about the way that they act or want to be, and they and they certainly don't want to be told what to do. So it's it's a bunch of different things that that um, that lead up to that resistance, I think. Um, and uh, I guess I'll add one more point, and maybe we'll discuss. We'll continue to discuss um, some of these. So, even in answering halacha questions, like in my role as a U.S. at halacha, I, I see that theme of comfort too. So, I don't really answer so many halacha questions for I Jenners. I don't know exactly how old they are now, but but um, okay, people in their young twenties or mid twenties or maybe even millennials. Um, I think you made it right. <laughs> um, so. I find this idea that that um, the answers that we give and the answers that people want to receive should work with our lifestyle and should meet our expectations is is a real expectation that people have. And on the one hand, we really want halacha to fit people's lives. This is the way that we live. We want it to to work for us, and we want, especially in the realm of hilchot nida, which is where um, pretty much the only area where I answer questions. So we want, we believe in shalom bayit, and we believe in couples being together and all these things. So we do want answers to come out and be affirmative if the question is, um, you know, asking for permission for whatever whatever it is. Um, but but we also need to sort of build up that resilience. What is What do you do when the answer that you're given is no? And sometimes I find, and I know some of my colleagues find also, that we we apologize. We apologize for the halacha. I'm so sorry, but but what are we apologizing for? You know, if we believe that this is the way that we live our lives, like, do we just want an answer, or do we want an answer that conforms with what we want the answer to be? And and that's um, really all we think that we can handle. So um, those are just a few things that I struggle with in those in those different roles. Um, first of all, huge. Um, privilege to be with all three of you, all people I uh, respect immensely. I also have a challenge, and I have a couple of students in the audience mm-hmm. here, so I therefore have to be maybe somewhat more circumscribed than what, I, what I'm <laughs> saying. Um, partly to just to put this out out at the start um, is just to say that I think a lot of our Igeners, if we're going to call them that generation, sometimes have the feeling of why are we being categorised as a generation with our own, you know, unique challenges that have to be studied? Like, really, was everything perfect in our parents' generation when they were high school, when they were college? And it, we, sort of, we sometimes feel imputed to us a sense of um, 
problematic abnormality, which which is not true. Um, so I, I think there's something to be said for that. But of course, nevertheless, there are obviously some unique um, unique elements, as there are with every generation. I, I really appreciated what both of what both uh, you said. Um, to add a, a few points from maybe a couple of different angles. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I don't come from Brooklyn. Uh, and so, <laughs> having spent that, that, that bio that Sarah read is very out of date. Um, <laughs> um, having spent four years now in, in downtown Manhattan, I, I, I still often look at my surroundings with something of the eyes of, a, of an outsider and you know, processing it through my own experience as a college student and just more generally growing up in the UK. And I think a very fundamental difference is that growing up in the UK, I had a very strong sense of being part of a minority. And a minority which was a religious minority and an ethnic minority, um, I felt comfortable. Um, I, I, I liked the UK very much. I felt, I felt British. But nevertheless, there was a certain you know, sense that the Jewish and the general, there was not a, a, a clear, direct, hand-in-glove fit. I, and I think that's, that's the historical model of Judaism, at least Judaism in the diaspora. Um, at the end of the day, you know, regardless of the quality of the machanchim and of the education and of the affluence or lack of affluence of the community... <laughs> You were part of the minority. You didn't really have a choice. You wanted to assimilate. That was that was really quite difficult. Um, and the amazing comfort that the uh, we're to talk about the modern Orthodox community, I assume, is our primary uh, group that we're talking about um, as a wider part of American Jewry, feeling you know completely without any sort of complexity. American. Um, I wasn't until I came here that I had ever even wanted to think if I was white, and I was so struck by my students who, without even a, a, a moment's hesitation, said, "Well, of course I'm white." Now, for me, I don't. I mean, when I, when I, on occasion, when I go to the hospital in the UK, you'd have about like, thirty different options of what you could what you could be, um, and it's quite hard given that. Judaism, and certainly our take on Judaism, depends upon a particular identity. Well, it's quite hard to see how that how that fits, and I think that presents a challenge for um, a lot of a lot of these students that I, I work with. Um, presents challenges in a number of ways. Um, partly, it does really come down to. Affluence. It's not just that there is a kosher restaurant that our students grow up nearby. It's not just there's a Jewish school and it's not just there's a summer camp. You can choose from any one of, you know, dozens. I think of the last Gush uh, day of learning at Lincoln Square, which some of you may have been at, Rabbi Shaul uh, Robinson made mention of the Great Kosher Foodies uh, Facebook group. Um, you know, like, you can have a fantastic culinary Jewish life. There are a range of outstanding schools to choose from. There is, you know, who knows how many year programs that would like um, our youth to go on them. And to borrow a phrase from a very different area, this just comes from uh, 
the difficulties of being a country with abundant natural resources, um, the paradox of plenty. When you've got so much, then it's very difficult to understand that sometimes you need to say no. Um, and that's something that I think a lot, of, a lot of people I know struggle with when, you know, there hasn't always been the growing up experience. This is kosher, this is not kosher. This is where you go, this is what you can't do. Then when, and again, if we're sort of moving uh, in terms of the age groups, high school, high school and university to purely university, what's, what's unique about, uh, or what's, what's original about the situation uh, that many of our students find themselves in who come from strong Jewish communities, who went to great uh, yeshiva day schools, who went to Israel, now finally um, as independent as they have ever been, um, and being confronted with choices of, you know, do I go out to eat with uh, the friends from my course who are going out to eat with their professor? Or... Um, there is something which, you know, might be really beneficial for my career prospects, which is taking place on a Shabbat. Um, they don't have much experience in exercising the no muscle. And uh, if you haven't exercised a muscle, then you don't know how to say it. And I would think that previous generations, and certainly people uh, growing up in uh, communities elsewhere around the globe, are very used to exercising the, the no muscle, it just being being a part of it. Um, I think that um, in terms of adding, you know what? There are many more questions. We've been talking a while. Other, other points can come in later. Please give us give us the next question, Sarah. Wow, amazing. Um, I'll share one more question for the entire panel to answer, and then we'll have the opportunity for you guys to interact with each other. Um, if the first question was about the challenges that this generation faces. I'm curious to hear about effective strategies that you've used to engage this population in Torah life. Which aspects do it, in Torah life do I Jenners and post millennials connect to the most? So you want to, or do we want to reverse the order this time? It's up to you. You guys start. I don't mind starting. Okay. Um, so I was reading an article recently by Rabbi Alan Haber. He wrote this for Atid, which is um, Academy of Torah Initiatives and Discourses, I believe. So he he wrote about the state of modern Orthodox high schools um, or elementary schools, perhaps also, and said that essentially we we really have amazing schools. Um, you know that that certainly needs to be said. We're doing such amazing work, not to pat ourselves on the back, but there are so many people out there who are really, um, who have made so many wonderful changes and improvements, and we're always looking to improve, and the state of, of our schools is really, really wonderful, and the state of college campus life is also, in my experience, really, really wonderful, and I know at NYU, it's also really wonderful, because they come visit, and they tell us, and our students visit, and there's so much engagement, but at the same time, we can also look and say, but but there's also so much missing. And it's not just because of what's going on in the outside world and how that filters in, but, but is there something that we could be doing better as educators? Um, and I think that the high school um, and elementary school you know, systems are, are t need to take a lot of responsibility for when they go off to college campus and there's less of a, a system. They, we need to take that responsibility to really prepare them, whether that's training them to say no in certain situations and, and giving them that 
experience or the, the answers, you know, it's, it's not all about having an answer sheet, but, but certainly about, um, about learning how to, to really be in that, in that open environment. So um, while we've done so much good, it has to be that there's still room for improvement if there are so many students who are not engaged, not connected, sometimes connected, but sometimes feeling not connected, or also just deciding to leave orthodox practice in total. So it has to be that there's still room for improvement. So in, in his article, Rabbi Haber, um, in his, his research, I believe he he um, interviewed a lot of principals and, and teachers and, and students. Um, he speaks about how essentially we've noticed that students need to become more connected and they need spirituality and an emotional connection, but we've really created this bifurcated system because what we've done is we've said, well, let's have the students build their relationships with their teachers, which is so important. Relationships is such a, a key, a key important value in, um, in religious growth. So let's take those teachers, and he had examples of schools where you'd have five to ten times a year, and your entire shear would eat at your Rebbe's house or your, or your um, teacher's house. And still, students would say, yeah, that was really nice. But how did that come back to their learning, and how did that connect to their their religious being at all? And it was just it was a nice addition, but it wasn't enough. And um, we have such amazing programs, and we have Color War that I- implements um, you know Jewish themes, and we have you know you could keep going weekly mishmar. So that's that's such an amazing thing. But the informal education the students see is really separate, essentially from the the formal education that happens in the classroom. And even in speaking to some of my students about these questions over the last few days, which, by the way, was a very depressing experience, um, with here and there, there were some positive things. But I think that when I processed that myself, instead of just saying, wow, that's so sad to me that they don't find this meaningful or sad to me, once I processed that, I said, well, first of all, they're teenagers. Or maybe my husband said that they're teenagers. Get over it, what they, what they said. But but also they um, now I'm forgetting what the um, um, okay maybe I'll come back to, to what the additional process processing looked like um, so so what happened is that they they want to make meaning of everything they take everything to heart um, sorry give me a second to find my train of thought. Um, Okay, so the so I was asking them, you know, what they thought of of class, and that's where they said Avram and, and Yitzchak don't, you know, how does that mean anything to me, and and what does that all have to do with things that are happening outside the classroom? You know, not much. So what he suggests really is is somehow merging the two and bringing spirituality, which is like an interesting word, what does that really mean, but an emotional connection to learning, all those things really need to be brought into the classroom. The relationship also, you can't just say, oh, your teacher's available for office hours and anybody who wants to um, come and and discuss deep life issues from 1230 to 1 on Wednesday, because what about the other half of the people who aren't coming? So you might be engaging the people who are like already sort of prone to that and already have that that pull, but um, but what about everybody else? So so somehow fusing those two those two realms, the informal and the the formal education, could could really enhance both. Because if we have a color war where we think about themes of 
fill in the blank, whatever your Jewish theme is for Color War. And if we have in the classroom, we talk about maybe even um, similar similar themes and we connect it to our Torah learning, it really could enhance both. It could make our our we, uh, you know non-classroom programs more meaningful and it could also help them feel like what they're learning in the class actually relates to their life, which again is like a, a theme that we see coming up again and again. I want this to relate to my life and I don't know if they really know what they mean by that because sometimes they think that means I want to learn halacha, I want to learn um, what is going to relate to me, but then we get into the rabbi challenges where they don't really want to listen to what the rabbis are telling them to do. So sometimes we just need to think about what we think is best for the students and not what they think is best for them. Um, so that was sort of one suggestion that really um, stuck with me where he, he spoke about fusing the two. Um, he also speaks about just generally bringing um, processing into the classroom and emotional connection to what we're, we're learning, stopping to think exactly what they're asking for. How, what does this really mean? How does this really connect? And sometimes I'll actually ask that question on a test. And a student said, I can't think of this question on a test, you know. So that can't be really the right time either when it's, you know, a few points to, to add up to 100 at the end of an exam. But it needs to really be um, time that we build into the curriculum, which is, of course, challenging as teachers because we have so many different things that are pulling on us and so many different goals. Um, and certainly um, it, it feels as a teacher that the academics is the most important and then Torah becomes this academic discipline. So um, if it wasn't an academic discipline, then they might not take it seriously. But if it's only an academic discipline, then they won't, then they won't grow and, and connect to it. So that's, that's something that, again, um, really needs to be balanced. Um, so I think I'll end with an example of where I, I tried to sort of implement this into the classroom. Um, so we were learning about how Hashem found Avram or how Avram found Hashem and how it was sort of this mutual thing. And um, what age did Avram find Hashem? So either it was age three or it was age 40 or maybe it was a different age, maybe it was a little bit of both. And Rambam talks about... Um, how it was like uh, at age three, he, he had this emunak shuta, like a very simple connection, and then at age 40, it developed and deepened. So to, um, Rabbi Chaim Jachter actually has this new-ish book. Um, I think it's called um, Permission to Believe, or that's the other one. Um, something to Believe. Um maybe it'll come to me. So he writes about how, how um, different, different ways of encouraging dis uh, discussion about belief and, and different ways to come to rational belief of God or other types of belief. So he had this example. He actually quoted his wife, who used to give this example with, her, with, her, um, her, with their kids, that it's sort of like you're holding on to a kite. And the kite goes out of view, and you're, you still know that the kite is there because it sort of pulls at you. So I, I asked them, have you ever felt the pull of the kite? Um, and they don't, it, it's a hard discussion. They're, they need to really be trained to have these discussions because they're not used to talking about God. And oftentimes these conversations are very sort of um, surface level and... They're thinking about, well, there was that time I asked Hashem to help me on my test. Always where the discussion goes. It's always about davening for your test, you know. So trying to, like, again, work on that muscle, I guess, if we're talking about building skills when it comes to our religious development. 
Um, so it was, it was just sort of an example um, that I tried to use to connect Avram and his belief and a midrash that, yes, you'll be responsible for knowing a little bit about this midrash on the test. How did Avram find Hashem? There were a few other midrashim, but also a way to just stop in class and really think and pause. And sometimes as a teacher, I also find that, like, I have to be what they call like an edutainer where you're like entertaining just as much as you're educating. And the, um, the passion and the, the dramatic, you know, examples and um, even just like being loud and present or being thoughtful about the way that you use tone of voice, sometimes that's what kind of grabs them like in a conversation like that. Um, I just remember very strongly the way I was like enunciating like and talking about the, the kite pulling them and like knowing that the kite is there and like you want them to feel like oh like something's happening here like I want to feel like I leave class having the chills because if I have the chills then maybe they do too uh, maybe um, so so that was one way that I tried to sort of bring emotional connection and spirituality like into the classroom and it taught me that like it wasn't so easy and and there it's not natural for them to have these discussions but but it really really needs to happen because they really crave it Um, the first question was, what are the unique challenges of this generation? The second question was, what are the strategies that you've used to success? But I just want to insert a middle line in there, in that it's not just there are lots of challenges and this is what we've been able to do, but you know, the first question could equally have been, what are the things that inspire you, us, about uh, the generation that we're talking about, and there are very, very many. I mean, I, I get really daily inspiration from from my students in all manner of ways. So, you know, the, the impression shouldn't be given that it's you know us coming up with ideas to solve problems. There's lots which is you know, naturally a wellspring of of positivity. Um, if we're to talk about um, though ideas and practical uh, projects or techniques which, which we have used, I quite often feel that um, at the university level I am challenging and reacting against an impression which is often given to students, I feel very frequently in Israel, that aged 18, 19, 20, in the Bet Midrash in Israel. Um, that is the peak of their religious life. Um, that, that's it. That, that, that's perfect. You know, um, there are no challenges. And whether explicit or more often implicit, the idea is frequently given to our students but once you leave that, it's at best treading water and more likely downhill from there. And so you should stay in Israel or whatever else. And students who are going, who are at institutions in Israel where they're going to um, colleges which their Rebbeim and Mechanchim may not think are the best places are sometimes given the impression that, you know, a miracle notwithstanding, you are you are doomed to, to failure. You know, the day you leave Israel is, is, is the day that you say goodbye to all of this. 
And what is so terribly damaging about that is that then that can come become a self-fulfilling prophecy um, because yeah, someone finds themselves, whatever it is, you know, however many months in, going through a bit of a rough patch, they then remember you know, the image that they had of their teacher and they're like, wow, they said it would come true and, and, it, and, it's, and it's coming true. Um, if we talk, to talk a little bit about Gush, uh, why not? Um, I distinctly remember, I think it was, you know, as an aside in a conversation, but Rav Moshe uh, Lichtenstein, you know, saying that he understood uh, the Shiva's message to be that wherever you are in life, it's Lechatchila. That, that moment that you are in your life needs to be viewed as Lechatchila. And he distinguished between uh, the Rambam and Masilat Yesharim. Uh, there's two different ways of looking at the world. And Masilat Yesharim, the world is basically an obstacle course. And uh, you want to try hard to get to the other end, but you're just surrounded by dangers and challenges on all sides. And the Rambam way of looking at the world is to say that the world is, you know, got plenty of opportunities in it. And I, I, we try very, very hard to, you know, to say that, you know, how enormously lucky our students are to have four years to spend in a place with an amazing Jewish life, with an amazing general life, and to, and to see that, you know, not that they are living on some cl- under some cloud of bedievedness, but this is an opportunity which has to be taken advantage of. I, I at least once a year, or probably more often, I quote the midrash uh, that discusses uh, when Shlomo Hamelech wrote his various svarim, and the opinion that he wrote Shir Hashirim as a young man and. Mishlei in middle age and Kohelet later on in his life and the idea being that you know every stage of your life is a stage where you can write your own sefer and that sefer has to correspond to the stage of life where you are at and not just forever be trying to you know claw back to something which is which is is not coming back so that that's that's a very broad general um, um, motif which try very very hard to to transmit um, and I think a lot of the time we, we are successful um, if you know, one of the tensions that a lot of college students live with is um, the tension between particular and universalist between you know what they feel is what they've been given versus what the wider campus culture values um, it's nice when possible, not always possible, but it's nice when possible to break down that dichotomy and to find the ways in which our own Masora has got the uh, sources and the resources to address these very large, larger issues. And then that way, you know, the student isn't choosing between I'm going to be in my Jewish bubble versus I'm going to be the, the broad generalist, but it actually is, is approaching the large, big topic issue through through their own Jewish identity. Um, something which has become a sort of a flagship project for us at NYU has been Matanot Levyonim um, every year at, at Purim. Um, we focus a lot on various issues in downtown Manhattan, <coughs> Jewish and, and non-Jewish. Um, we, we do stuff uh, with Israel as well. 
um, in downtown Manhattan. We put a big focus on homelessness. We put a big focus on Jewish poverty on, on the Lower East Side. And it's, it's a lot more than um, simply donating money. It's uh, about getting out um, noise and excitement about, about actually buying um, uh, things which are going to go to make up care packages. It's about delivering them and you know now it almost runs itself. It's something which brings hundreds of people in every year, which you know is able to reach a, a huge amount of audiences. And some sweet spot spot seems to have been hit, where the very real, very genuine mitzvah of matanot levionim is then able to connect up with uh, a sense of relevance and a sense of bigger picture um, need. Uh, which which actually does do something for our students. So that's just just one one idea. <coughs> so I don't think we have much time left, but uh, let me try to hit a few issues and maybe respond to some of the things that we said also. Um, <coughs> I think that one of the things that really resonates with our kids today, this goes back to something I said earlier, um, is a sense of humility. Um, coming to them, not, not pretending to have all the answers. Can they live in an in, in age of infinite information to pretend that we have the answer? Sometimes very off-putting. Um, in educational speak, we call it you know, the guide on the side rather than the, sage, than the sage on the stage, but to be the teacher who's facilitating this process of acquiring knowledge right, um, rather than the person who is the spout of knowledge. Um, going to something which um, Joe just said, I think that even looking earlier on, for opportunities for our kids to share their values more widely. And it's almost counterintuitive because if they don't actually know who they are yet, why are you having them share who they are with others? But but my, my experience is it works. It's a, it's a formative experience. It helps them to concretize and think deeply about who they are, who they're not. And I don't mean in a proselytizing way, but in a way of, we live in a multicultural universe, right? So where's our voice? Where, and how do I empower you to help bring our voice out there to the larger, to the larger world, to the larger society, the Jewish community, or beyond? I find that that can be really empowering for our kids. Um, I think that kids today still very much want a sense of community. They relate to a sense of community. Um, you know, they're they're looking for it. Some of them look for it online, but even but even in the in the um, you know, in, in the in the real world, I think it still has a power and a draw. That, um, that is deep for them. They want to belong to something, and using that, facilitating that to, to, to bring them in, I think, is critical. And if we go even more nuclear, I think it's critical to remember that, that families still have a really powerful impact on our kids. In fact, you know, the data that's been collected about you know, kids going to, whether it's been here in Israel, or how kids are doing in college, it still seems to come back to so much of it is dependent on what family did they come from and what were the influences of the family. And I think you, know, you brought up Ishmael Arziona to talk about the Israel experience in general. It's less impactful than it was you know, 10, 20 years ago because of communication, because we're, on the, you know, we're WhatsApping with our kids every day. It's not that same sort of take the kid out of, you know, divorce them from their parents for a year or two and mold and shape them, which... You know, on the one hand, we might be bemoaning that. On the other hand, it again speaks to the power of the family. You know, who are those parents that the kid is WhatsApping with every day? And what do those conversations consist of? And is the parent asking the kid about what they're learning? 
you know, and what they're thinking about and how they're growing, or is the parent, you know, focused on, you know, what they're wearing, where they're going to eat, right? Um, or, you know, um, how soon they're coming home for Pesach or the next trip that we're taking. Um, so I think that's key. Um, the, the last thing that I wanted to bring up, and so there are two pieces to it, is we also live in a world where with kids who want to learn. In fact, I think they want, perhaps this is a learning generation unlike any other we've seen before. Right? Because when these kids want to know how to do something, they look it up. Right? They go onto YouTube, they go onto Wikipedia, whatever it might be, they're constantly looking for information. Now, is that the same thing as learning a ktsos? No, it's not. Right? It may be a different kind of learning. You don't really find a ktsos on YouTube too often. Right? But, but the point is they actually want to know. They're not an ignorant generation. They really want to know and they sincerely want to know. And if it's something that piques their interest, they're going to look. And they're going to look until they satisfy themselves. They found some answers. So harnessing that to a certain degree, figuring out what we can do to sort of build on that so that they become, you know, so they feed this desire they have for information. I think it's really key, and then I'll add, I'll leave with sort of a provocative question, and I think this goes back to some of what people were saying, which is, given that they, they do want to learn, right, in some way, right, they, um, but but I think the time may have come for us to question whether our day schools and the way our day schools are set up are in fact the right way of getting them there. To be more specific. You know, this wasn't part of my bio, but for a while, the uh, you know the school that I knew best was actually Belajan. Um That's that's was really my training, and uh, the day school phenomenon is a is a very new phenomenon, right? It's uh, I don't know, seventy years old at this point, and it was an attempt to take something which is serious text based study and democratize it and say what used to be just a small element of our of our population did it, you know, and now we think that everybody. It should be trained in this way of connecting to HaKadosh Baruch this way, Avavod HaSashem. And, and it, we may have reached a, an inflection point where perhaps we should think, is it the right thing for everybody? Um, is it the system with, by which we, our kids should be judged as to whether they are successful Jews or not? Um, and if not, are there perhaps other avenues that we should be opening up for them earlier on in terms of their Avodah Sashem? It looks like we have to come to a close, but I'm sure it would have been really fascinating to hear the two of you in stronger discussion together. And I'll close with one final point. Um, when I, finishing my year in Mixal Oz, um, by the one of the Madrichot there, whose name is Frantz Hanner, our now friend Miller, many of you, many of you probably know her, um, she shared with us Divrei Bracha, the Rav Aaron Lichtenstein shared with her when she was finishing her second year in Migdal Oz. And when he was speaking to the Tamizot in Migdal Oz, Rav Aaron said that whenever he speaks to any student before they're about to close their time in Gush or in Migdal Oz, he says, take the Shiva with you. Take Migdal Oz with you. And I think something that resonates with me as I hear the three of you speak is how we, in as much as we are individually in, our, in each of our institutions trying to focus on both the challenges and opportunities for creating success, something that resonates with me is that we can also look to a wider network. Every one of us here is in some way connected, either as Bogrim or Bogrot, or in other ways to Shivat Haaretzion. When we take the yeshiva with us, when we take Mikhail Oz with us, it's not only taking those experiences, those foundational experiences, which 
created those foundational building blocks of our Vodat Hashem, our connection with the texts of our tradition. It's also thinking in powerful and innovative ways of how we can trans- take that Judaism that has transformed our, our minds and our souls so we can best impact the generation to come. And so when we think about both the opportunities and the challenges that lie ahead and, the, and our education of iGeners and post-millennials, let us use this conference. Let's take the yeshiva with us, take the yeshiva with us, so that we can best meet these opportunities and challenges today. Thank you so much. Thank you.